Do you consider yourself a wounded, weak, and weary person? I was thinking about the U.S. this week and how it's a tough place to preach the gospel because Americans don't often see themselves as wounded, weak, and weary. The American spirit is one of individualism, uh, confidence, self-confidence, and self-sufficiency. Americans are, are wealthy people. North America is the wealthiest region in the world, and wealth has a way of deadening Awareness of insufficiency and need. This overconfident spirit recoils at the gospel. Katy Perry's song, Firework, gives voice to a widespread philosophy of today. The song begins like this. Do you ever feel like a plastic bag, drifting through the wind, wanting to start again? Do you ever feel, feel so paper thin, like a house of cards, one blow from caving in? Do you ever feel already buried deep, six feet under screams, but no one seems to hear a thing? Do you know that there's still a chance for you? The song addresses people who sometimes feel inadequate, but it never actually acknowledges that people are inadequate. It never acknowledges human sinfulness or inability or misery. And then the song offers hope, but it offers hope in the wrong place. It continues... Because there's a spark in you. You just got to ignite the light and let it shine. Just own the night like the 4th of July. Because baby, you're a firework. Come on, show them what you're worth. Make them go, oh, 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 as you shoot across the sky. Baby, you're a firework. Come on, let your colors burst. Make them go, oh, oh, oh. You're going to leave them all in awe, awe, awe. It's essentially saying, go out there and wow them with your remarkable abilities. How inspiring to put all the pressure of winning the approval on the world, uh, of the world on the people already feeling insecure and vulnerable. That's not gospel. That's law. That's a burden of covenant of works. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ actually is good news. The gospel is hope for wounded, weak, and weary people. The gospel is not show them what you're worth. The gospel is the life, death, and resurrection of the one with superlative worth. 21 Pilots expresses a much better approach. They sing, can you save my heavy, dirty soul for me? Who did Jesus invite to come to him for soul rest? All who labor and are heavy laden the spiritually impoverished, those with heavy, dirty souls, not the self-confident. I think for our text this morning to mean a great deal for us, we need to first see ourselves as wounded, weak, and weary. Dr. Dan Doriani said, quote, we cannot rest in his grace until we see our need for grace, unquote. How much do you sense your need of Christ. Oh, wounded, weak, and weary, come to Christ with your need and trust that he can meet it with himself. I'm going to give you a strong dose of hope this morning. And my aim is Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. 
So I have eight hopeful words for you. Resolved, attractive, prophetic, choice, humble, gentle, just, and hope. And Jesus is each of these. Number one, Jesus is resolved for the wounded, weak, and weary. I mean to say that Jesus is determined, determined to accomplish his Father's will for the good of the helpless. It is the Father's will to redeem his helpless people through the efforts of Christ. The resolve of Christ is great hope because it ensures that salvation will be completed. In verse 14, the hatred of the religious leaders toward Jesus uh, intensifies. They conspire to destroy him. Mark tells us that the Pharisees held counsel with the Herodians. Now that's odd because the Pharisees and the Herodians were horrible enemies collaborating to destroy Jesus. Things were getting bad. And verse 15 tells us Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Now, on the surface, it might seem like Jesus withdrew because he was afraid. Not so. I think the biggest reason he withdrew was that it wasn't his time to die at the hands of his adversaries or even uh, to hasten the process. John 7.30 expresses this point, I think, well. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. When the appointed time did come, Jesus said, the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. When the God-appointed time had come, Jesus humbly, bravely, and joyfully submitted himself to injustice and crucifixion. Here, Jesus wasn't running in fear. He was submitting himself to God's will and perfect timing. His withdrawal confirms his resolve to do God's will, to continue his compassionate ministry to the afflicted until the appointed time that he himself would be afflicted by the cross. Verses 15 and 16 continue, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. He commanded people not to make him known. Again, it wasn't his time, and, and unlike many today who aspire to social media fame, Jesus didn't live for the high of being noticed by others. He strongly charged people to keep his extraordinary ministry on the down low, which, ex which uh, exhibited his resolve, his determination, his steadfastness to achieve God's will on God's terms. So here's hope. The same resolve which kept Jesus steadfast on the way to the cross is what keeps Jesus steadfast in preserving his wounded, weak, and weary people on their journey to everlasting life. It is the resolve of Jesus which secures the hopeful truth of Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. His resolve is hope for you. Number two, Jesus is attractive for the wounded, weak, and weary. And I'm not talking about his physical appearance. His entire person is magnetic to the wounded, weak, and weary. Self-righteous people find Jesus unnecessary, often offensive. Verse 15 says, and many followed him and he healed them all. Well, who followed him? people in need, people who needed healing, 
and all who came to him for healing were healed. They got healing. He denied none. Why? Because he is charitable toward those who limped to him for good things. The Greek word here for heal is therapuo. That might sound familiar. Therapuo, related to our words therapy and therapeutic. Jesus heals and restores, and that makes him attractive. Now, sometimes when people are in great pain, they actually look forward to having surgery. Maybe some of you have been there before. Why? Because they have pain and they want relief. Spiritually wounded people have pain and they want relief. And the offer of healing in Christ is therefore very attractive, very appealing. If you hiked in the desert for hours and hours and hours without water, you would become very thirsty and very tired and weak. So how would you respond then if you met someone who offered you a cool drink of water? Well, you would grab it, grab it and, and guzzle it with great gratitude. You would love that. Weak people who know they are weak find Christ's invigorizing, uh, invigorating rather, ministry appealing. If a soldier was in battle and he was called to be on watch for 48 hours straight, he would jump at the opportunity to leave the front lines, to go back to base camp and to get some sleep. Spiritually weary people striving under the law to no avail find the promise of true rest and refreshment in Christ's grace quite appealing. It's attractive. And of course, this assumes that the Spirit draws them to Christ. Jesus healed disorders, disabilities, and diseases. He also healed afflicted souls. He said things like, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. That power, authority, and compassion is quite appealing. Quite appealing. Now, what is considered attractive in our culture? Interesting. Physical beauty and sex appeal. Youthfulness, wealth and possessions. Intelligence, charming personality. Cultural influence and power. Jesus didn't come to earth with the accoutrements of cultural attractiveness. His appeal is different. It's different. Jesus appeals to the poor in spirit. Number three, Jesus is prophetic for the wounded, weak, and weary. Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Ages ago, God promised a serpent-slaying seed, son, savior, and sovereign. The entire Old Testament anticipates this great chosen one. And when Jesus arrives on the scene, he fulfills the covenant promises of God. When you look carefully at the person of Jesus Christ and his life and his ministry, you begin to see dots connect between God's covenant promises in the law and prophets and their fulfillment in Christ. Verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. I actually prefer this translation. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. God spoke through Isaiah. Isaiah gave the promise of Jesus Christ many years ago, before Christ. Verse 17 says, this was to fulfill. What was? Well, you look back to verses 15 and 16. Jesus withdrew 
and charged them not to make him known because he was resolved to achieve the Father's will in the Father's timing, and he was not fame-hungry. Also, people followed him because of the kind of person that he was, kind-hearted, generous, charitable, compassionate, loving, gracious, very different from the religious leaders at that time. So now, verses 18 through 29 are quoted uh, from the prophecy of Isaiah to show you that Jesus is the promised Messiah and to show you what Jesus is like as the promised Messiah. Jesus fulfills Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. So what we hear in the following quote from Isaiah, which Matthew very helpfully mentions at this point, describes who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. And he is all these things for the good of his wounded, weak, and weary people. Number four, Jesus is choice for the wounded, weak, and weary. Choice meaning worthy of being chosen, precious, priceless in the sight of God. 1 Peter 2.4 says that in the sight of God, Jesus is chosen and precious. He's choice. Listen to what God says through Isaiah about Jesus, verse 18. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Not just any servant. Jesus is the servant of God, the servant that God chose, the elect servant, the choice servant. Jesus has supremacy. This is the only place in the New Testament where this Greek word for chosen is used. And it emphasizes Jesus' extraordinary role and office of servant. How does he serve? Calvin said this. He is called a servant, not as if he were of the ordinary rank, but by way of eminence and as the person to whom God has committed the charge and office of redeeming his church. Unquote. God chose his beloved, the choice one, with whom his soul is well pleased to hold the all-important and preeminent office of redeemer for the wounded, weak, and weary church. And this is not the first time that we've heard this in Matthew. Matthew 1.21 says, you shall call his name Jesus. Now, why would they pick the name Jesus? Why, Why did God want him named Jesus? For he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 3.17, at the baptism of of, uh, Jesus, when the Spirit rested upon him and the Father spoke from heaven these words, saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. It was this chosen and choice and beloved servant whom God put his Spirit upon and gave the office of Redeemer. Folks, who is worthy in God's eyes? None but Jesus. None but Jesus. No one else is worthy in his sight. When the world foolishly looks inside of themselves to find worthiness that is not there, the wounded, weak, and weary, by the grace of God, realizing their unworthiness, look to Christ in true faith to see him as the chosen, beloved, and choice servant of God in whom they are justified before God and therefore also beloved of God. 
Upon whom did God put his spirit? Upon his choice servant, his beloved. For anyone else to have this, the, the spirit, the chosen beloved and choice servant of God must grant the spirit to them. God put his spirit on Jesus unto what end? This is beautiful, to preach justice to the nations. To, to bring the law and the gospel to the nations, the whole earth. And if God chose Jesus and God employed Jesus as servant and God loves Jesus and God is pleased with Jesus and God put his spirit upon Jesus, will we not then as wounded, weak, and weary sinners find our hope in Jesus? If God esteems Jesus worthy, shouldn't we esteem Jesus worthy? Worthy to believe, worthy to trust, worthy to father, uh, follow into the, the favor of God. God considers Jesus choice. And brothers and sisters, he is choice for you and me. Number five, Jesus is humble for the weak and uh, wounded, weak and weary. Verse 19 He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Now, did Jesus go out to the Pharisees and Herodians and like in the movies, get all up in their face and have some like climactic line that that is like, you know, go ahead and try it. I'd like to see you try it. Come on. Was that the kind of spirit that he brought? No, he, he left quietly. And, and consider what he did. He left quietly and continued his ministry of compassion for people who had need. And this connects back to verses 15 and 16. Jesus isn't brazen. He's not noisy. He's not self-importance begging for attention and applause from the crowds. He, he probably just wouldn't have been on Twitter. His disposition is one of humility, peace, joy, strength, truth, reason, hope. He didn't spend time in the streets clamoring for the applause of the crowds. Now, he wasn't silent, but he was modestly calculated, intentional, and steadfast. Calvin said, the prophet shows of what nature the coming of Christ will be, that is, without pomp or splendor such as commonly attends earthly kings, at whose arrival they are uttered uh, various noises and loud cries as if heaven and earth were about to mingle. But Isaiah says that Christ will come without any noise or cry, and that not only for the sake of applauding his modesty, but first that we may not form an earthly conception of him. Secondly, that having known his kindness by which he draws us to him, we may cheerfully hasten to meet him. And lastly, that our faith may not languish, though his condition be mean and despicable. And, and that means lowly. His condition is lowly and unassuming. Let's not hesitate to come to Jesus because he's so different from everyone else who clamors for attention and applause. Look at me. I'm the greatest. The ways of Jesus are so countercultural, often not what we expect. And if we're not careful, we will yawn at him instead of standing in awe of him. Our culture is ostentatious 
showy, if you will. Do, do we need pomp and circumstance to notice and appreciate beauty and glory? Do we need flashing lights and thumping music and pyrotechnics to notice and appreciate beauty and glory? Behind ostentatiousness is emptiness. And because Jesus is so different, many are simply inclined to miss his glory because they're looking for something else and they don't see it in him, in his person, in who he is. Jesus is modest, he's kind, he's humble. He said things like, I am lowly in heart. Where are the lowly in heart in professional sports? I'm not seeing them. Where where are the modest in Hollywood? I'm, I'm not seeing them. Where are the humble in politics? Where are the meek on social media? It's amazing how naturally drawn we are to ostentatiousness. And this is why we yell something like, Oh, when we're watching YouTube and we see an NBA player proudly step over his opponent after dunking on him just to shame him. We revel in this. We cheer at brazen acts of self-importance. And there Jesus is, possessing supreme importance and power and glory. But yet, he's lowly in heart. He is quite different from us quite different from us, and we will miss his glory unless we receive his sovereign grace which draws our wounded, weak, and weary selves to his feet to receive beauty and glory unlike any other. He didn't come with much fanfare, but he did come with much power and much grace for the wounded, weak, and weary. For those who know they need to be rescued You see, folks, his his humility is part of his power and glory and goodness. Number six, Jesus is gentle for the wounded, weak, and weary. This is one of the most precious truths in all of Scripture. And we need to take it to heart. This, brothers and sisters, will quiet your restless soul if you believe it. Verse 20 says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Now that imagery does nothing for you if you are self-assured. It just falls flat. It doesn't mean anything. The self-assured people assume this isn't talking about them because they perceive themselves much differently. They're strong. They're worthy. They have it in them. But if you are wounded, weak, and weary, this imagery gives you tremendous hope. Dr. Dan Doriani writes this, reeds grew by the millions in marshes and by riverbanks, so they had little value. A whole reed could be cut and shaped to serve as a measure, a flute, or a pen, but a bruised reed was worthless. This prompts a couple questions. First, If a perfect reed is fragile and a bruised one is useless, why will Jesus not break a bruised reed? Because he is gentle. Second, why does this matter? What is the point of the message? The point matters because we are the bruised reeds. We are the bruised reeds in this imagery. 
People afflicted by their sin and misery welcome the gentleness of God in Jesus Christ. They long to be treated gently and graciously by God because knowing their sin and unholiness and insufficiency, they fear God's wrath and they fear God's justice. And yet when they come into God's favor, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, they revel, they delight in, they marvel at his gentleness toward them. It it is a delight the delight of their, their lives. We, we are the bruised reeds, unworthy, undeserving, pitiful, and contemptible. We, we feel at times, brothers and sisters, as if we're going to break, as if God might choose one day because of our sin and our failure and how much we do it to just cast us away. He's done with us. He's gonna bust us up, and yet there Jesus is saying, I'm not going to break you. I will not break you. And why? Because we belong to him. We are his beloved. He is not harsh and uh, brutal with his beloved bride because his heart is gentle. That's his disposition towards his people. He knows their fragility. What was Jesus' disposition towards the harassed and helpless crowds? Do you remember earlier from Matthew? It was one of compassion. What what was his disposition towards those laboring and and bearing heavy loads? It was one of gentleness. Back in Jesus' day, they they didn't have candles. They had clay bowls that held olive oil, and they had little uh, flax or linen wicks in them. A smoldering wick is different from a flaming wick. A a flaming wick has a bright flame. You can see it. It provides light. But a smoldering wick, it has no flame but it is burning. Both are burning, but the smoldering wick is barely burning, but folks, it's burning. So let me ask, how strong is your faith? Is it a bright blazing flame or is it smoldering? How strong is your faith? And let us not think too highly of ourselves here. How is your faith in times of suffering? How is your faith in times of injustice? How is your faith in times of uncertainty or loss or failure, maybe even moral failure? How's your faith then? Doesn't it feel sometimes, brothers and sisters, like your faith is smoldering? It's barely hanging on. It's about to go out. Jesus said of his chosen disciples, oh, you of what? Little faith of the disciples, of the apostles. Aren't you wounded, weak, and weary? Aren't you of little faith? But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't quench smoldering wicks. He gently serves you in your weakness Brothers and sisters, he preserves you in his grace. He sustains your faith, dim as it may be. He keeps you. J.C. Ryle interprets it like this. This is profound. Listen carefully. Let them know that weak faith gives a man as real and true a saving interest in Christ as strong faith, though it may not give him the same joy. There is life in an infant 
as truly as in a grown-up man. There is fire in a spark as truly as in a burning flame. The least degree of grace is an everlasting possession. It comes down from heaven. It is precious in our Lord's eyes. It shall never be overthrown. Do you understand this? There is hope for us the wounded, weak, and weary. A little nursing child is alive. They're alive. He can't feed himself, can't hold a steady job, even consciously enjoy life to the fullest and contribute to society in the same way that an adult can, and yet that little child is alive and the delight of his parents. A spark won't keep you warm on a cold night, on a day like this, and yet a spark carries heat and light as does the roaring flames in the earth. The joy and peace and contentment and rest of strong faith, it's just superior to that of weak faith. You don't have that same sense of assurance and comfort and joy, of course. We want strong faith, and yet both strong and weak faith is saving faith, uniting one to the all-sufficient Lord Jesus Christ. Christ does not reject you because of weak faith. He serves the wounded, weak, and weary to strengthen and embolden them because that's his gentle and generous heart. He never abandons the wounded, weak, and weary. Not his saints. He delights in helping the helpless. He delights in defending the defenseless. This is our Lord. This is our Savior. This is our prophet, priest, and king. This is the one who loves us, brothers and sisters. This is our God. He is gentle and concerned and considerate and life-giving. He possesses unrivaled power and supreme authority and divine ability, and yet he also possesses unrivaled gentleness, kindness, compassion, And that's why he is so awesome to the wounded, weak, and weary. The self-important, self-confident, self-sufficient, they look to strengthen themselves. But the wounded, weak, and weary, they look for warmth and kindness from their God who loves them and will be gentle with them. The gospel is insulting to the self-important because it threatens their sense of independence and their sense of self-esteem. It forces them to acknowledge their sin and misery, and it forces them to acknowledge the sufficiency, sovereignty, and supremacy of Christ the Lord. And quite frankly, submission in this way simply turns their stomachs. They don't want to do it. They won't. They stiffen. You see, many, many Christians are simply confused about Jesus. They don't know him. They love the thought of his gentleness, but they don't really want to hear about his justice. They don't know the goodness of his justice. But the two come hand in hand. Number seven, Jesus is just for the wounded, weak, and weary. First is a line from verse 18. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And then there's the line from verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. In verse 18, the exact language of Isaiah is, he will bring forth justice to the nations. The nations. What does that mean? I like how one study Bible put it. 
quote, the servant of the Lord will reveal God's justice in law and the gospel, unquote. Jesus preached law and gospel. Jesus is the fulfillment of law and gospel. In the law is the condemnation of lawbreakers who refuse the spirit in unbelief. And in the gospel is the justification of lawbreakers who receive the Spirit by faith, who are granted the Spirit by the choice and beloved and pleasing lawkeeper, Jesus Christ. One note said, quote, the servant brings the good news of the arrival of the kingdom, but also pronounces judgment on the rulers of the world who reject him, unquote. Justice is the condemnation of unbelievers and the justification of believers in Christ who bore the condemnation of God for them. Both are justice. By the Spirit, Jesus preaches the law and gospel, grants the wounded, weak, and weary His mercy, grace, forgiveness, and righteousness, puts His Spirit in them, and through faith, what does He do? He produces righteousness in them. Obedience. And this is not just for Israel, this is for the nations of the world. The justice of God is for the nations. The gospel of God is for the nations. In verse 20, Jesus brings justice to victory for the nations. Jesus preached judgment and Jesus preached the cross where the choice one receives the judgment meant for the wounded, weak, and weary in order for them to stand just before God in order for them to fight against the flesh, the devil, and the world, in order to stand victorious with him. Nowadays, there's a lot of talk about social justice and racial justice and critical race theory, and I think a lot would be solved if people concerned themselves less with theories and more with absolute truth. Listen closely now. Jesus the Christ, God's chosen one, God's beloved, God's pleasure, extends absolute justice to every tribe and language and people and nation in the law and gospel. The preaching of the choice one is for the nations without exception, and much reconciliation would happen along racial and ethnic lines today if we all realize that together we are equally wounded, weak, and weary. Equal in our need of God's mercy in Christ. That the blood of Jesus Christ brings justice equally for whoever comes to Christ for mercy and grace, no matter where they're from or what they look like. How does anyone on planet earth today have an air of superiority over anyone else if they understand this gospel? And that they are equally in need of this gospel. The red, brown, yellow, black, and white embrace Christ together for they are all wounded, weak, and weary in their sinful and miserable condition. We would all do well to remember that regardless of our skin color or ethnic heritage, economic class, education level, political affiliation, or any privilege we may have, we are not choice. There is only one who is choice, and he alone is the shared hope, the common hope, the mutual hope, the collective hope of those who come to him together for forgiveness and salvation and an entirely new life. Just soak in the gospel, brothers and sisters, of Romans 3, 21 through 30. 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. There is no distinction. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Jesus is just. For the wounded, weak, and weary from the nations. Number eight, and we end here. Jesus is hope for the wounded, weak, and weary. I I really want to give each of you hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to Titus and talked about God's grace, salvation, renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions, living self-controlled and upright and godly lives. And then Paul wrote this, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Saints, Jesus is our blessed hope. Our blessed hope. He is glorious. And at his appearing, we will rejoice, brothers and sisters, because our hope will have come and we will see and we'll experience in full. Verse 21 says, And in his name the Gentiles will hope. The nations will hope in the name of Jesus Christ the Lord. His name tells you what we hope in. Jesus, Savior, our Savior, uh, Christ, the anointed one of God, the Messiah who saves, the Lord. He is our master to whom we belong. The Gentiles are a theme throughout Matthew. The, The covenant which God established with Abraham was a covenant of grace, a promise of grace or gospel for the nations. That happened in Abraham. To Abraham, God said this, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. And then to Isaac, the great son of promise, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That promised offspring was Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord. He's the promised offspring. The Gentiles, the nations, will all be blessed in Christ, the promised offspring. 
God's plan was always to redeem a people from the nations. One people gathered from the nations and uniting them to Christ. Always his plan to unite as one people to Christ. One united people. And Matthew, in Matthew, we've seen grace for the Gentiles to communicate this point. The wise men. Jesus living in the region of Galilee of the Gentiles. The centurion. Even the great commission at the end of Matthew where he sends his disciples where? To the nations. The hope of the nations is the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Now my aim has been this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope, hope. Where do the wounded, weak, and weary look for hope? Where do we look today as the world burns to the ground? Where is our hope? Where are we looking? Where are we supposed to direct our gaze? To Christ! To Christ, because Jesus is resolved, Jesus is attractive, Jesus is prophetic, Jesus is choice, Jesus is humble, Jesus is gentle, Jesus is just, Jesus is hope. For the wounded, weak, and weary. He is everything you need, brothers and sisters, and more. Hope in God, hope in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the clear word that you give us. Every Sunday you provide us with grace through the means of your preached word. Throughout the year, your sacraments give us the means of grace to communicate to us in a tangible way the gospel. We pray to you and you commune with us. We are quite blessed to be sitting here this morning delighting in the preached word, the truths of the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your gentle demeanor towards us because of the efforts and works and merits of Christ, our Lord, our Savior. I pray that my dear brothers and sisters will take hope in you, will take hope in Christ. Apply this message to us. I pray that it means something, that we would render ourselves wounded, weak, and weary, and that our need would drive us to Christ, and that by grace through faith, we would see in him our greatest hope. So Father, do something coming out of this message in our hearts that we may truly delight in you. We love you, Father. Thank you for listening to us, and thank you for communicating to us your loving message of gentleness in Christ and his wonderful works. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. One of my uh, favorite doctrines is the imputation of Christ's righteousness. It's that our sin was credited to Jesus on the cross and Jesus' righteousness is credited to us and now we have a, a chance to respond and to delight in imputed righteousness that we are seen as righteous because Jesus gave us his robes of righteousness to wear.